Welcome to the Business of Design podcast. I'm Cheryl Horn, Director of Operations for Business of Design. A lot has changed at Business of Design since this episode originally aired. For the latest information and rates on events and membership at Business of Design, head to businessofdesign.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Business of Design. We are the OG coaching community for design professionals just like you. I can say OG original gangster because we are now officially 15 years old. And that means 15 years of lessons from this community and from clients who have taught me the proverbial hard way and 15 years advocating for this important group of industry peers. Thank you so much for being part of my life. I really don't think I could do my job without you. You have been instrumental in pushing me to grow. And I also want to say thank you so much. We have so many loyal business of design listeners and paid members, especially. I will be honest with you, we cannot continue to do the work that we have in front of us, which is educating designers and students and consumers without your paid support. So thank you so much for those paid members. But I do want to thank all of you for having our back. We are now in a position where we receive emails and direct messages almost every single week from business of design supporters and advocates, alerting us to the fact that there are those out there who seek only to profit from our community. And in some cases, they think the way to do that is to imitate business of design. I guess there are just always going to be those people and companies who want a shortcut. And rather than put in the hard work of creating their own effective systems and strategies that work, like we have done during the past 15 years, Um, they just want to espouse our ideas, but pass them off on their own. So I just want to say thank you to those people who reach out privately, confidentially, and anonymously to let us know that we may want to take a look at something that's happening with our name on it. And, uh, we appreciate it. Today's podcast Woo, this is somewhat unprecedented for me because I'm speaking with this guy I really admire, Tim Williams. He is a career marketing expert, and that is expert, by the way, with a capital E. He has some opinions, which I will say are based on years of experience and tried and true client methodology. And I don't necessarily fully buy into everything Tim is going to share, Um, on the subject of flat fees versus hourly fees. I mean, isn't that a topic we could talk about forever? I will say I am 90% in agreement. And then there is this nagging 10%, which I can't quite account for yet. I am going to approach Tim to have a few more conversations and we are going to figure this out together. I know it. The conversation is really juicy. So it's going to take place in two parts. I can honestly say that I learned some brand new concepts from Tim. At least they were brand new to me uh, from the conversation I had with Tim. And additionally, I read one of Tim's books, which was Positioning for Professionals, and I got a lot out of it. I still have more questions for Tim and more prodding to do. Uh, I think he's on vacation right now. Otherwise, I'd be pestering him to have the next conversation. Uh, Following this week's podcast, I am going going to give some thought to pricing strategies he suggests for us, specifically the razor and blade strategy, which you will hear Tim describe. Super interesting, and I can't wait to give that some thought. 
Before you meet Tim Williams, let's hear from Cheryl Horn. Hey, Cheryl, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I am good. I'm packed and ready to go to High Point, and I understand the birthday party is completely and totally sold out, and uh, we have everything organized and planned. It's going to be great fun, so looking forward to connecting with everybody in High Point for sure. Yes, we're definitely going to have a full house for that one, but you can also meet up with us uh, earlier in the day. So on October 19th, the Saturday morning of High Point, you are going to be talking at the theater, doing a seminar, have the professional life you've always wanted. That is a free seminar. You don't need to register. Just come on out. That'll be at the theater. We'll talk about that disconnect between what you imagined owning your business would be like and what it actually is like, and I'm going to give you the top five metrics you need to keep focused on so that you can actually have the business you dreamed about, not just a job that is ever demanding and not satisfying. So that's going to be a really great event. Again, it's free. You do not have to register. We will see you at the theater at 10 a.m. that day. For those of you who want to do an even deeper dive into your business, you can join us for the Business of Design Conference happening January 25th and 26th at Las Vegas Market. So registration for that is still open on the website. It's $13.95 for two intense days of learning. What do we mean by intense? We mean that from the first talk we have in the morning to the last talk in the afternoon, we are going to be drilling down and giving you systems and procedures which you can implement. There is no theory allowed. This is for anyone who is tired of haggling over fees, who wants new and better clients, who's interested in fine-tuning systems and procedures or creating brand new ones. It's for anyone who is ready to have an operations manual that guides and leads your team into greater profitability and even more important, into satisfying clients more often with ease. If you're like me and you despise wasting time on learning that doesn't get you anything, then you're going to love Business of Design's conference, January 25th and 26th, Las Vegas Market. And thank you so much to IMC and Las Vegas Market who are allowing us to use that facility two days prior to market opening. If you've never been to market and you'd like to figure out how to use Las Vegas Market, we will help you do that as well. If you've been to market 132 times and you just want to come for the learning and hang out in Las Vegas, this is the conference for you. Lots of people are asking us what is included in the $13.95 that you're paying to go to the conference. So there will be, as we've discussed, lots of learning. There will be handouts. There will be processes and systems you'll want to implement into your business. You will be receiving a section of the operations manual, which will be brand new to Business of Design members. And they have been anticipating this for going on a decade now. So we're really excited about actually making it available. It will also include your breakfast, your lunch, 
and we will aim for healthy food. We're not going to just ply you full of empty carb sugar so you feel lousy through the day. It's also going to include a Sunday evening cocktail party. And we can now announce, I think, Cheryl, that Build Lane has come on to the conference as a sponsor. We are very grateful to them for their participation. And they are also hosting the cocktail party on Sunday evening. So we think it's kind of a perfect mix of hard work, heartfelt connection with other interior design professionals, and then just straight up fun. Yes. So again, Business of Design Conference, January 25th and 26th, Las Vegas Market, 1395. And all the details are online at businessofdesign.com. Thanks, Cheryl. Take care. Welcome to the Business of Design podcast with Kimberly Selden. Business of Design is the coaching community for independent designers like you. We know it takes more than hard work and talent to successfully run a professional design firm. There are proven business strategies that can solve your immediate challenges and transform your life. Don't try to do this alone. Join today and you'll have access to more than 100 video courses, participate in monthly coaching calls, and find unlimited support within our exclusive members-only Facebook group. Unlike traditional coaching, BOD is a fast track to immediate results for independent interior designers, decorators, architects, stagers, and landscapers just like you. Monthly membership is only $79. Annual members save two months. What are you waiting for? We all know design matters. At Business of Design, we think designers matter too. is a career marketing professional whose mission is to help professional service firms, that's you and me, escape the tyranny of an unfocused business model. As a globally recognized expert in the areas of business and pricing strategy, Tim is a noted author, international speaker, and presenter for business organizations worldwide. He is the author of two books, and one of them I just finished and enjoyed it from top to tail, I have to say, Positioning for Professionals, How Professional Knowledge Firms Can Differentiate Their Way to Success. Tim is one of those authors I love who writes just like he speaks. It's not full of jargon. I could follow it easily, and I could really understand the points he was trying to make and how those same points, even though he speaks largely to the advertising world, how those same points adopt themselves to my interior design business. If a talented designer in your firm can design a brilliant floor plan in 10 minutes instead of 10 weeks, Should you get paid less for that effort or more? That's the question. According to Tim, the pay by the hour system is flawed and I don't disagree with him, but I have had trouble figuring out how to tell new designers to jump straight into fixed or flat or value-based fees. So I'm going to put Tim on the spot and ask him directly how this applies to our businesses. He also made me rethink the two terms effective versus efficient. I think those are both great words. Tim says one has more value than the other. I'll let you decide if you agree with that. Tim, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy week to do this interview. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I'm pleased to join you. Well, I don't know if you could feel the energy from me going all the way to you, but I have been reading your book 
positioning for professionals. It is now dog-eared and highlighted and exclamation marks and even a couple of WTF, I don't understand this moments I had with this book. So obviously you hit a nerve with me in this book and it's all good stuff. Well, yeah, it sounds like you read books the way I do. Uh, A book is uh, only improved by marking it up and putting big question marks on it. And like, here's here are the things I need to do, or this is something I have to ask Tim about. So I have a million questions and so many directions to go. I know that your focus these days is consulting for firms that are small, that are large, that are multinational firms around the world. And your specialty is pricing uh, as well as the value equation. So I have questions about both of those things. And why don't I kick it off with what I said I was going to talk to you about initially, which is this. I sure. I am a big fan of your blog. In fact, the smartest people I know tell me you're the smartest person they know. So that has to mean something. <laughs> so um, it, Propulsion is the name of the blog, right? Yes. And that's part of Ignition Consulting. That's right. Yeah, that's the, the blog uh, that we publish on the website. And um, I, I write a few other places as well on LinkedIn. Uh, but yeah, that's that's the that's the official blog. So an article that caught my attention had to do with the value equation and how it's a backward billing model that if we're billing for our time rather than for the value we provide clients, we're putting ourselves at a disadvantage and maybe putting the clients at a disadvantage as well. And I've heard other people say this, but I think you articulate it really clearly why that is. So can you just first talk to us about how we got started ever billing by the hour? Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Actually, we can blame uh, a, a lawyer named Reginald uh, Smith in Boston in the 1940s, who was the first uh, professional to have the idea of billing for time. Actually, his uh, the the his idea was that he wanted to track his time to measure what people were doing and and try and figure out uh, how how his people were were creating value and investing in, in client business but he never intended it to be a billing model that kind of came a little bit later when he thought well maybe we could just attach a hourly rate to these hours and the rest is history the uh, the professions all copied law firms um, eventually even, uh, other kinds of businesses that really didn't need to, like like uh, ad agencies that were making a fine living charging uh, commissions, but they also decided to move to the billable hour structure in the 1980s. And it's turned out to be a bad idea for, for everyone. Uh, there's a lot of backpedaling on, on the billable hour now in, in all those industries. We're seeing it in our industry as well, which is interior design, architects, uh, designers, decorators, stagers. Those are the people listening right now. And to my mind, it's an improvement over the other side of the equation I see, which is a race to the bottom. Designers underbidding each other to get jobs and then realizing they're going to make, you know, $3,000 for one year of service and value. So... 
somewhere there must be a solution to the conundrum. Like, I wonder if Reginald, when he decided to track his hours and bill for them, actually increased his fees because he said, wow, I didn't realize it took so long to get someone a divorce or, you know, sue someone over their buggy accident or whatever it was that he did. (laughs) Uh, Well, yes. No, I don't think he made more margin as a result. The the result that that most professional uh, service firms have experienced with the billable hour is that it gives them the illusion of being able to capture that time and that value because they've got a record of it and they feel like they can go back and ask their clients for more money, but few few uh, ever do. And it's a difficult discussion with clients. Uh, I'm sure we've all had that experience. The, the problem of the race to the bottom with quoting a price that is inadequate for the services you're about to provide is really just a matter of poor scoping and poor pricing. Um, I, we would argue that, the, that quoting a fixed price for fixed scope is vastly superior to billing by the hour because you're giving your client uh, price certainty uh, they they know that your your incentive is not to to work long hours and bill more time, but your incentive is to do a good job for them and be effective at the job that you've been hired to do. So, um, if if you're losing money on projects, that's uh, the, the the billable hours not to blame, or the lack of billing for time isn't to blame. It's just poor scoping and poor pricing, and it's we're probably doing a poor job of showcasing the value that we provide to our clients. Um, One of the things we teach is to provide options so that when you're, even when you're quoting a fixed price for a, for a project, you're providing your, your client or prospect with uh, several different options so that they can have some context and make a a decision about uh, what they want you to do. Because I think one of the one of the things that happens is that clients misunderstand what you're about to do for them. They assume you're going to do more than 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 you plan to do. A lot of them are uh, uneducated about the the work we're doing for them. So by providing options from a small, medium, large, kind of a good, better, best, we're able to show our clients, look, there is a there is a uh, a premium version here that in which we do a lot of things that that you may not want to actually pay for that may be overboard for you, but at least they can see that. And if they pick the middle option or the least expensive option, that they're doing it consciously and, and knowing that, that that that's what they're going to get for the price, and you're not going to you're not going to go out of that scope. Okay, I understand all of that in theory, and I know all the listeners do too, but I'm going to say about the interior design profession, which I know is not your, it's not your wheelhouse, it's not where you've been parked, but about that business, getting a solid scope of work, one that doesn't move, is really, really difficult. So often clients will say, I'd like to hire you to do the kitchen, And that's great. I can do a fixed fee for the kitchen. It's not a problem. But then while I'm at the kitchen, they're getting more comfortable with me. Everything is going well. They say, hey, Kimberly, as long as you're here, can you also take care of the front door? 
it needs a new front door. We need a new front door color. We need some new landscaping out there. Could you just add that to the list? And and so it begins, mm. scope creep, which mm. which a lot mm. of people think is bad, scope creep. And I think scope creep is wonderful. It means they trust me, the job's about to get bigger, and I can bill in increments of time to capture that extra work. Does that make sense? Yes, or you can bill... I mean, that's you're describing additions to scope, really. So you you, you obviously mean you're you're going to take on more work, but you're also going to charge more money. A better way to do that is to say, you know, I'm really pleased that you're happy with my services and and that you'd like to do some more work together. Uh, so let's walk around and decide which areas of the home y- you'd like my help with, and I'll come back to you and and. Uh, provide the additional price for that work so again it's not you saying well i'll just keep track of my time and send you the bill in which case your your client could become very surprised and and um, upset and quickly unhappy with with working with you because it's much more than they expected by you coming saying let me let me just come back to you i'll, I'll come back tomorrow with a, a price for this work is is a better way to approach it because then you've You've clarified expectations between the two parties. I've shared this on the podcast recently that we went to a job for clients that we have done work for previously, and they only wanted us to add a screen porch to their country home. Not a big job. That's wonderful. They're lovely, happy to do it. By the time we finished the job, which was about a week and a half ago, we not only added the screen porch, we removed an exterior wall and made a wall of windows in the house. We completely gutted the kitchen, the bathroom, the bedroom, and completely redid the basement, which was the full footprint of the whole house. And we have landscaping now underway. So in that case, I would have had to create a new scope of work and a new price structure at least five or six times, which seems challenging Um, And I wonder, one of the other things that I struggle with is if I were to truly tell clients what it would cost me to to be profitable on a job site, I think they would stroke out. I don't think they could handle the number. Mm. Well, then that would mean that you're underpricing if if your clients uh, would not understand the in other words they don't appreciate the value that you're you're creating on their behalf um well once again the think about and this is more your world than mine but i've i've uh, built uh, a house with a general contractor my son-in-law is a general contractor and i've um, my we've remodeled several homes so my experience with them is that that the change orders are a way of life for them. You you want to add an extra door, then they they produce a change order. I mean, it's just so so additions to the scope and, and change orders are something that all professional service firms ought to be more better ought to be better at and more diligent about. It's it is it can be a fair amount of work, but it beats the alternative. Which is surprising your customer with with a higher price than they were expecting. Or you losing money, so it's just it's just a good practice. I mean, we ask professional firms of all types: uh, law firms, accounting firms, consultancies, um, ad agencies. How much uh, how much of their total revenue comes from tracking and charging for changes in scope? 
And the answer should be 20 to 30 percent. And the answer usually is 5 percent. And that's because they, as they will acknowledge and admit to us, they do a poor job of, of, doing, of tracking uh, scope creep and scope changes and, and charging for it. And they end up um, on, on the short end of the stick as a result. I think that's a danger for anybody who does a flat fee or a fixed fee or a value-based fee that you're, you're, you know, we get complacent and we're having a great moment with a client. They say, oh, Kimberly, I, I love what's happening on the screen porch. And since things are going so well, could you just take a quick look at my bedroom? And it's so easy to go, sure. And so you go in there and you make some suggestions and you're going to repaint. And then you say to yourself, like, it's hardly anything. Like, honestly, how am I going to build them for that? It's just why don't I just do it? It'll be a gesture of good faith. But the problem is then you set this expectation that every time there's additional scope, that there's not going to be a fee. And you find a lot of designers walking around with big resentments. Yeah. And you're giving away your most valuable product. Um, a, there, there's a, a principle of pricing psychology, which is that a service is always more valuable um, be, before it's delivered. In other words, if you were to say that you're invited to look in the bedroom and, and you, because you're an expert, you can walk in and you can immediately have some ideas about how, how that room can be improved. So your tendency, uh, again, and maybe in a show of good faith is to, to just go ahead and, and say, well, if I were you, I'd, I'd change the paint and I'd tear, tear down this wall and I'd add these curtains. But the better course of action would be to say, gee, I... I would be really pleased to help you with your bedroom. Let's go take a quick look. Let me take some some pictures, uh, and I'll come back to you uh, quickly with with some ideas. Even though you've got some ideas on the spot, which most professionals would, to say let me come back to you with some some ideas is going to help you capture the value that you're creating for for that client. Because let's face it, you're you're not selling, and this goes back to the fundamental. Um, problem with with billing for time is that you when you bill for time you're essentially selling your costs you're saying well I cost myself so much uh, in terms of the salary I pay myself and the overhead it, it, uh, it costs to run my business so therefore my hourly rate needs to be x and I need to recover that and so therefore what we're really billing the, the hourly rate is a manifestation of our costs, has nothing to do with the value we create. It's completely unrelated to the value we create. It's only a reflection of the costs that we incur. So when we charge our clients that way, we, uh, we put ourselves in situations all the time where we're giving away what we're really selling, which is not our costs, but rather our expertise, when you walk into that bedroom and make those instant recommendations, what you're what you're doing is you're providing your client with the thing that you're really selling, which is not your time, not your effort, not your energy, but your expertise. And so you, you just you just need to stop there and say, oh, "Let me come back to you and uh, with with some recommendations." That way, uh, you'll feel better about charging for that, and your your client will feel better about paying for it. 
Yeah. Okay. Wow. There's a lot to to dig in here. <laughs> I'm not sure which direction to go in first. I guess with the with the time conundrum, you're right. If you only create an hourly fee that covers your costs, you're not going to be make your margins. So you have to create an hourly fee that is providing you with a living. You know that's extraordinary. And one of the challenges I think in 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 our business is there is this creative wisdom we bring to things. I can envision blowing out a wall of the bedroom and making it a wall of windows. And I know, even though that's a very expensive thing to do, I can assuredly tell my clients that that will change your life. You will be so happy you spent $100,000 on that because that's going to be a life-changing experience. That's actually not the hard part of what I do. And it's not the time-consuming part of what I do. The time-consuming part of what I do is the project management. And that's Mm -hmm. the stuff that I think designers don't get paid for, but get called into and have a liability around and have responsibility around, but aren't necessarily making money. So we charge for all of that time as project management um, with an hourly rate, which is sizable. I mean, it really adds up. It's sort of shocking how much time we can spend on a job site. Sure. Um, e- even that can be estimated in advance and, and quoted as a fixed fee if you've defined the scope well. I mean, one of the, yeah. one of the things that, that I think we, we tell ourselves is that we need time tracking in order to tell us how much time we, we spend on average on a typical job. Well, most professionals I work with have been in the business a good long time, uh, 10 years or more, 20 years, 30 years. And my answer to them is, so you, you really don't know after all these years uh, what your investment of time is going to be. For this type of project, on average, I mean, there's there's all there are always aberrations and particularly difficult clients that that create unexpected challenges. But but we've been at this long enough in, in professional services. We generally know what our investment of time is going to be, including things like project management. We have a sense for it. So even that can be can can be committed to uh, in, in advance um, on a on a project. Do you find yourselves in the advertising world, for instance, having surprises the way that we do? For example, we were renovating a client's basement, and when we opened up the walls, discovered we had a structural problem, and that meant stop everything. We need a structural engineer. Now we need permits. Now we need to put in steel beams. So, you know, clearly another $100,000 later and a lot more time, the problem is resolved, and the clients are happy, and that's great. How on earth would we ever be able to anticipate something like that? Yeah, they're equivalents in in all professional service firms. I think law firms would 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 say the same that they're in their discovery work. If they uncover they uncover a situation or a set of facts that that really alters the entire case, then then that's going to change the the scope of the engagement for sure. So, uh, I've got two two thoughts about that. One is that you would want to mitigate against that kind of thing contractually by saying that this, uh, this price is assumes the following and you, you, you set out these assumptions that the, the walls are all, you know, structurally sound or, or whatever th- things that in your experience, no could, could go wrong or could present a problem that you spell that out, uh, in a set of assumptions. The other is to, um, price, 
in phases. So in in a lot of uh, in in ad agencies and law firms and consulting firms, they they would say, well, we can't quote you a price all up front because we we don't know what we're dealing with until we get through what they would call a discovery phase. So let us interview your people. Let us uh, ask some questions. Let us do a little market research, and then we'll understand what the real problem is, and then we'll be able to quote you a price for for phase two. Uh, which is usually the development. So in your world, that would be the the, the design, the actual design and the recommendations. And then there'd be a third phase, which would be the implementation, the execution, um, which would, which I think you could relate to in uh, interior design. So we always mm-hmm. teach you should, you should price in phases. Right. Absolutely. And it's, it's always that third phase where the surprises happen. It's all, it never fails that it's the third phase where, um, <laughs> It's there's always a surprise. <laughs> it's never dull. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. What I advise sometimes for new interior design professionals is that starting with an hourly rate is a good way for you to understand how much effort it takes to get a job done. And then when you have some years under your belt and you have a profit margin that's you know looking reasonable, at that point you can switch to that value-based fee. But what I find so often with interior design professionals is there's a fear to tell the client what it's actually going to cost. And it seems to be, if not unanimous, at least quite large. A lot of people have that mm-hmm. fear. Um, yeah, I I think that with, uh, with someone that's just starting out in the business and they don't have the the history under their belt of knowing what their costs are going to be, um, that tracking their time is, is maybe not a, a bad idea, but I don't necessarily think it means you have to bill, bill that way. Um, if they want to track for their track their time, I mean, we work with several, quite a few firms who actually still insist on wanting to do timesheets and track their time, uh, which I would argue is, is really not necessary, but, but they, they use it as a, a bit of a, um, as a fallback so that they can, so as they transition away from billing by the hour. Um, but meanwhile, they're, they're executing other pricing strategies, by the way, fixed price for fixed fee is only one pricing approach. Um, we teach this concept of a pricing stack, like, a in maybe heard of a software stack or technology stack, at least in, in uh, my business. And th- it's this idea that th- you've got a lot of different ways that you can uh, price and charge for your services. And um, you'll, you'll recommend one once you have a better understanding of what you're trying to achieve for that client. Um, for example, I, I imagine one of the things you could do, it, and it's maybe fallen out of favor, is, is markup on outside purchases. Um, is that not done at all anymore. We do that as well. So we do charge for our expertise in increments of time. We do charge for um, all of our trades, the trades that fall under our umbrella, and we do charge for any product that we purchase. But we also do um, value based fees as well. It's just when I first started mm-hmm. teaching, it seemed so frightening to me to teach newer designers to start with that uh, fixed fee. But I, I'm curious to know with the, pri- with the price stacking, how would you recommend somebody get started with something like that? 
Well, it, it and it varies depend on depending on your business model. They there are lots of consultancies now that are able to charge subscriptions or licensing fees for access to some of their intellectual property. So um, I don't know what the equivalent would be in interior design. I think there there's maybe less of that, but but anything that you do that's proprietary or um, services that you have that could be productized in a way, those can be sold um, based on a licensing fee or a subscription. I mean, there's a, there's a school of thought um, that right, right now that in economics, it believes where the, the entire uh, capitalist economy is moving to a subscription based model uh, that in the future you would, you would subscribe to almost everything you buy. So even now, even today, you can subscribe to a car. You can subscribe to a Volvo or a BMW. Um, you, you don't buy it. You don't rent it. You don't lease it. You pay a monthly subscription fee, and it allows you to, to drive a car, drive pretty much any model of that make that you want. Um, you can subscribe to a refrigerator, um, so I imagine you could subscribe to an interior design service there among the, the large consultancies, over half of their revenues is derived from some form of subscription based service. So that would be an example of another pricing methodology. What, what we, we teach this idea that, that you don't have to have a standard off the shelf pricing approach. You, there are lots of different ways you can approach uh, pricing, um, and you just have to determine it based on the the opportunity at hand. Um, sometimes you, um, I, I mean, here's a wild example, and it, it actually there are examples of it out out in the marketplace. Uh, pay what you want. So that sounds pretty dangerous and pretty scary. There are restaurants in New York and London and some other big cities that there's no menu prices. You go in and they. They're very good restaurants. They serve you the meal, and at the end of the meal, you're you're asked, "Well, to just pay what you think it was worth." And uh, that's a that's pretty uh, innovative pricing model. Uh, Radiohead, the band, uh, had an album they released a few years ago that didn't have a price. It was "Pay What You Want," and they report they made more on that than uh, anything they they'd done before. So, there are professional firms that we've worked with that will occasionally experiment with that. So it's not their go-to pricing model, but in some cases they'll have a client where they will do, uh, for example, design an entire website and decide that this is the kind of client that they have a, a high enough level of respect and trust with this organization that they would trust this client to come back and pay what they think it's worth because they feel like they might actually earn more that way, not less. And that's often the case. Another example of a pricing methodology that I, that I think could, could work in, in your business is what's referred to as two-part pricing, um, razor and blades. This was developed by a man named King Gillette, the Gillette Safety Razor, uh, over 100 years ago, where his idea was that he would sell the razor itself inexpensively cheap the razor is cheap but he would charge a lot for the blades uh, we experience this today when you buy an hp printer for 99 dollars, and the, the cartridges are 
five hundred dollars. Yeah. Uh, that's a razor and blades exactly. razor, right? Wow. <laughs> that's a razor and blade strategy, and it's used all the time. And we see it being done in professional services. It's not to be a. It's not meant to be a bait and switch at all. You're upfront about it, but you say, "Look, we'll we'll do this piece of work um, at this price, which is quite inexpensive." But then, as so for you, that might be the ideation piece or the, mm-hmm. the design piece. But then the the blades, your version of the blades, would be um, for the implementation, the execution for every room in the house that you add. That's your version of blades. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I love that. I never I never heard that story before. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting, and it's funny because, of course, I think. The real value is the ideation, um, and then yeah. the part that's the blade is the grunt work, the implementation, yeah. although that takes a high level of skill as well. I do understand that a client might be comfortable with that scenario, might might feel good about that scenario. So I'm, that's interesting. I love that. We are going to leave things right there for this week, but I am definitely going to be taking some time thinking about that razor and blade strategy. I promise to share my ideas and thoughts with you in part two of this conversation, which is also really good. Episode 135. I will let Tim finish off the episode. Tim, as you know, we like to end every episode with design intervention. Any pearls of wisdom to share with everybody? Well, I think the idea of marketing and positioning and pricing being common sense uh, really hurts us. It's 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 not common sense. It's actually sometimes the opposite of common sense because when you're thinking about your business model, you're you're usually um, trying to appeal to the the center of the market, the, as broad a market as you can. And, and we want to do the opposite. That would be common sense. But but what makes good commercial sense is to, to pick a part of the market, uh, not the average, but a, a sector in which you can say, there's nobody better than our firm in this particular area. Narrow that focus. It comes back to that again, right? Narrow that focus. Wow. Exactly. Well, I don't know if you've narrowed my world. I think you've expanded my world and just given me so many more things I need to look into. But I want to thank you so much for your time and for being so generous with all of us. Yeah, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for being a part of the Business of Design community. If you love what you hear on the podcast, take the next step by signing up at businessofdesign.com. As our thank you, you'll gain access to Business of Design's 15-step project management strategy, a free introductory course which includes three Business of Design systems you can implement for immediate results. And when you're ready for success, a Business of Design membership, monthly or annual, will dramatically improve your business and your life. What are you waiting for? Together, we will achieve extraordinary results. Start today.